Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. And with that and more, we'll bring on board co-host of the morning show, Kevin and Query, weekday mornings here on The Fan, 7 until 10 a.m. It is Jake Query with us. So how close am I to sounding like I'm somewhere in the middle of this Bermuda Triangle of Marshot, Lou Brown, and Scott Farrell on the bench? Where am I? Who am I closest to? You know, at the beginning, when I first heard you, I would have said, and I can't pinpoint which one, but one of the Muppets. I don't know which. Oh, great. But, <laughs> I like my choices better than that. Thanks. But as you got warmed up, I would say Pharrell on the <laughs> Pharrell on the bench. Yeah. It's pretty darn close. <laughs> you know, but but you're you know, hey man, you're you're plugging through. I like it. You're a gamer. It's correct. You know, Pharrell on the bench, Scott Pharrell who was big time in sports talk radio in the 90s. I th- still think he still has a show, but he actually started his radio career in Bloomington at B97 yeah, working with kid. Joe Smith. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah, remember him I'll going all what. in on, on, on Ed Lynch, who was a relief pitcher for the Cubs at the time. And I remember listening to him in the afternoon when I got off of school, do a sports update, just ripping the pants off of Ed Lynch. And I thought that's a little bit different than Joe Smith right there. And as it turned out, it was. By the way, Joe Smith, who's a legend. I, mean, I love Joe Smith. Yes. Right? But Joe Smith, who I, I don't know that I've met Joe Smith, but I've always heard he's just a dear guy, just a great guy. He is a great guy. Yeah. But he, um, Joe Smith did a critique of Dave first when Dave was a student at IU. And in his critique of Dave's work, he said, you say, um, too much, <laughs> which, which if you listen to Joseph's Big Ten scoreboard updates, it's the greatest critique of all time. Check his scores from around the uh, big uh, 10, uh, it's uh, Michigan uh, State, uh, which is kind of, I mean, that's just his style, right? But. Yeah, Matt Taylor's got a great impression of him, too. But now, Joe, uh, Joe's legendary. We used to uh, call him a friend of mine, John McGue, spent a lot of time working as downtown. Yeah, yeah, downtown Johnny on WTTS back in the day. And then was a sales guy for artistic media partners with me when I was in Bloomington. And I think also went back to TTS after that. But uh, John McGue, we used to reference him as uh, Jim Rockford. That was his nickname from the Rockford Files, James Garner. Beautiful. Yeah, Johnny McGee's a good guy, man. Man. None better. I think what you I had said, to- by the way, about the Colts is dead on. I, I mean, John, that game, you know, that game on Saturday, the reality is it's obviously embarrassing to lose in that fashion. It's embarrassing to Squander the biggest lead in the history of the NFL. This is, you know, they they continue to get humiliated coming out of intermissions. Yeah. But in the end, a loss is a loss, just as one win is one win. And there would have been nothing to be gained by winning that game. I know the Colts, for pride, 
want to win that game, and I get that. But there's nothing to be gained. And, you know, if you're Chris Ballard, you know, you've got to be somewhat ashamed, I would think, to know that you are at the point now in the season where the season is a complete wash, and now you've got to hope for negative results in order to try to salvage anything positive out of it. Because yeah. this is this is just not – you know, if you look at the other teams that are drafting around like, – you know what's interesting? If you look at the other teams that are drafting that the Colts are scoreboard watching to see where they're going to slot in terms of the draft, the it's a combination of teams that either A, didn't have a lot going into the season, so you kind of knew this is where they were going to be, or B, teams that were savvy in their trades, a la Detroit, and put themselves in position to draft really good players because they were savvy in terms of trades they made. Whereas the Colts, you know, have, have traded out a lot. And, you know, they've, they've got a – and Chris Ballard has been good in undrafts. I mean, more than, more than he has not, admittedly. But they've got a hit because they, they covet so much turning high picks into multiple later round picks. Obviously, they're not going to do that this year. But, you know, Kevin was saying this morning, is it the most disappointing or the most – I think he said the most embarrassing season that he can remember for the Colts. That's probably accurate. I mean, look, they had some – I'm old enough to remember. I, I mean, you know, when they were – they started out Owen. I don't know, Owen 13, I think, in 91, and Dickerson was suspended, and Ron Meyer got fired. I mean, it was a total disaster. But everybody knew going into it it was going to be a total disaster because they traded for a young quarterback the year before, but they traded their best receiver and their best lineman to get him. I mean, my goodness, like they had Jeff George was out there throwing the guys that were either off a trash heap or like nobody even remembers who they are, and he had nobody protecting him. So – you know, there was no light at that time. There was no – you didn't look at anything and have any reason for optimism. This team, I guess you could say there's reason for optimism because they have some good players. As we've talked about all season long, John, I just think those good players are in positions that aren't of great value in today's NFL. And, and where they go from here is going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I mentioned this, and, and Jake Query joins us. I think this is the most embarrassing season of all time. And you and I both can speak to this because we know exactly when they got here and what we were dealing with when they got here, how everybody was just happy that you had an NFL team, had no idea what real winning in the NFL was all about and really didn't have much of an idea at all until you had that comet of an end of a 95 season. And then obviously the Manning era brought that in, something that you recognize now as the top of the level. But because of the lack of expectations during most of that early era if not all of it I, it's just different now because every year they have tried to sell you on this product that's going to be at in a division championship level or a, a game hosting at home in the postseason level or a winning a game in the postseason level and not only do they miss the mark again but they're doing it in embarrassing fashion and it's not just on the field it's all this off the field, discombobulation, you get the owner meddling, you get all this stuff going on that sometimes can be reminiscent of the bad old days. And that's exactly what you don't want, Jake. You know what? Let me tell you something interesting, John. And we've talked a lot about this, I realize. But from, for those that are 
that don't recall or didn't live here or too young, from 1984 to 1993. Now, granted, they had some seasons where they won. I mean, people got super excited. Don't get me wrong. I remember being thrilled in 87 when they went to the playoffs and they played in Cleveland and, you know, being heartbroken when they lost that game. And, I mean, yeah, the strike was part of the reason why they won the division. But they had some uptick. They had some good players. You know, Jeff Robb was a good player. Albert Bentley was a good player. Bill Brooks was a good player. Chris Chandler was a good player. But what you had then was everyone in town knew that Bob Ursay was, you know, I mean, every everything that you've heard about Bob Ursay. I mean, everyone knew that Bob Ursay was totally inconsistent had terrible problems with alcoholism, was never sober, and was just a total fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants decision-maker that would cut guys at halftime and have his buddies calling in plays from the press box and on and on and on. So there was no expectation. The brand of the Indianapolis Colts for the first 10 years they were here, quite frankly, was dysfunction. That's all we knew. That's all we knew. We knew that they came because they left Baltimore in the middle of the night. We were thrilled to have them. And But what we knew was that the, the organization itself, because Bob Ursay, when he was out in public, was dysfunction, and everyone knew it. So to Jim Ursay's credit, once Jim Ursay took over ownership of the team and made a concerted effort to not be his father, and Bill Pullian came in, and we've discussed many, many times the, the possible reasoning that Bill Pullian came in, but nonetheless, when Bill Pullian came in and Jim Ursay either by decision or because he was forced to do so, step back and let Pauline take over. Jim Mersey gets credit for the fact that for whatever reason and for whatever design, he allowed for his organization to then be represented by stability. Peyton Manning was 99% of that. We all know that. But nonetheless, that's what you had. And you had an owner that was making a concerted effort to not be, to separate and cleanse his franchise from the stain that his father had built in its reputation. And I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that it's to the Bob Ursay days level. Nothing could be. But this is the first year, John, and I think it's of concern to people over the age of 45. This is the first year that we have seen a Colts season that has started to feel like it has some of the thumbprints of what we saw from Bob Ursay from 84 to 94. And that's what I think is of concern to people. It's so Jay Query, the morning show co-host. Weekday mornings, Kevin and Query, 7 until 10 a.m. here on 93.5 and 107.5. The fan, we're live at Buffalo Wild Wings in Franklin. You can join us today. We've got uh, tickets to the uh, Monday night game with the Chargers, autographed helmet, and more on a blue Monday. Again, Buffalo Wild Wings. We are in Franklin and apologize for the voice. Not sick at all. Laryngitis is the culprit here, and we are slowly working our way back to Pharrell on the bench, to Lou Brown, to a carton of cigarettes, and our smoking guy right now. But we're getting better as the show goes along, hopefully for you. I will bring this to you, and I don't think there's a chance in hell this is going to happen. But let's say Michigan runs the table, wins the national title. Is, is Jim Hall, could you view Jim Harbaugh? as a next head coach and a savior for everybody, is that the best result that you could ask for on any level as the next head coach of this Colts team? Well, I think certainly based on his record in the NFL and college, and Jim Jim Harbaugh has his eccentricities, don't get me wrong, but he clearly can coach and he clearly gets results and he did in San Francisco. And so, yes, I think he is target number one. And I think that he would offer the one thing, the other thing I think Harbaugh would do is 
you know, I, I think that what we have seen, if you look really since the Manning Polian era, okay, when you transitioned into Gregson Pagano, and then obviously you go from that to Ballard Reich, Pagano, Ballard, Ballard Reich, those are all guys that what do Chuck Pagano, Chris Ballard, Ryan Gregson, and Frank Reich, what do they all have in common? All of them got their first opportunity as a general manager or head coach with the Indianapolis Colts. And so as a result of that, they had to kind of fall in line with what the owner who was giving them that opportunity was, quote, unquote, suggesting that they do. Jim Harbaugh is a guy whose track record, whose pedigree, and whose previous relationship with the Indianapolis Colts as a player would dictate that he wouldn't have to fall in line with that. He's one guy I think that would be able to say to Jim Harbaugh, not, or to Jim Irsay, I don't think we want to go that way. Here's what I want to do. And I think that's probably needed at this point, is somebody that by default does not cause Jim Irsay to subconsciously or subliminally make decisions, and rather somebody that Irsay has enough respect for that he is going to allow them total autonomy. And I think that's what's needed. Yeah, you know, and mine was just kind of a, a surface sample here of, of Harbaugh being a guy that if, and again, I don't believe it's going to happen whatsoever, but if you could, would reconnect everybody who have been disconnected by virtue of, of this season, you know, either through embarrassing losses like Saturday or it just – kind of tired of paying attention to it, tired of being told how good it's going to be, that it not being that level, whatever the case. I think that's something that, that re-energizes, that juices up a fan base that is in desperate need of it. You know, again, you can always juice up a fan base with wins, but without playing, that's going to be tough. The hiring process is going to be, for the long term, as important as what you do with that quarterback to me as well in how the fans react to it, how everybody reacts to it, and that is, to me, a can't miss if you can do it. I just don't think that there's a chance in hell you're going to, but that's my rationale behind why that would make so much sense to me and why that would be as big a deal around here as we've seen in a long time. Yeah, I agree with that. I, but in the end, you know, fans are, and I don't mean this to pick on people of Indianapolis or anywhere else. We're the, I mean, I'm, I'm in this category as well. We're all the same, right? Fans are the most hollow-threaded people ever, right? Like, fans are always like, if they don't make a change, I'm not coming back. I'm not going to buy tickets anymore. Yeah, okay. Until they start out 3-0, and and then you get the old fear of missing out, and you got to be down there, and you got to be at the games. and You know, so – no matter who they get, if they win some games, people, people, the interest will be sparked again. But I do think that Harbaugh, you know, one thing about Jim Mercer, he's a nostalgic guy, John. And, you know, he's, he's a guy that loves the history of his franchise and has a great reverence and respect for those that contributed. And Jim Harbaugh is up there in the ring of honor. And, you know, he, when this town first fell in love with the Colts, you know, we, we had a crush on the Colts for the first 12 years they were here. And then Jim Harbaugh threw that pass into the air for Aaron Bailey, and the entire city stopped and collectively for a moment dreamed about what was going to happen if that ball came down and he caught it. And that was the first time that we had that taste and that high that we have chased. And, of course, we ultimately met it, but chased it ever since. 
And in that moment, this city then became infatuated with the Colts. And I think Jim Mercer would love to go back to be able to capture that moment to get everybody infatuated all over again, even though we all know they don't really ever break up with you. But that would cement it for sure. All right, Jake, this was asking me a little bit earlier. I kind of used that as a tease. Do you think this situation is one that, let's just say, you go in, you do draft a quarterback, which we all expect. Let's say Ballard's still there. Saturday isn't as a head coach. Matt Ryan isn't as a quarterback. If you go in, is, is this an easy fix? Is this something where you can jump right back on what you had hoped to be the course? Or is this going to take longer again because of the shortcomings of the team, of how it's been constructed, and of then having a rookie quarterback to have to deal with? Well, this is where, and I didn't have this epiphany until this morning, but then I had it. And this is where I think they erred. I don't know that we can answer that, John. That's the problem. And the reason we can't answer it is because in any, like when you were a kid and you did science experiments, the one thing that you do when you're doing a science experiment and you're trying to erase a variable is you have the control, which is the consistency from one experiment to the next. They keep changing it. So we don't know what the control is because is, is this roster good enough with really good experience coaching to get over the top and was Frank Reich the problem? Well, we don't know because they removed Frank Reich and then replaced him with a guy who was even less experienced than Frank Reich was. So how the hell do we know? Was was Frank Reich actually a really good coach and the the roster was the problem? Well, we don't know because they went and they replaced him with a coach that is learning on the job. So there are just too many, you know, Midway through the year, we removed the quarterback and we put in Sam Ellinger, who got two games, and then boom, all of a sudden, let's put Matt Ryan back in there. There are just so many things that they've done where they haven't allowed any sort of traction towards any theory to be truly tested. That's the real challenge. I do personally think they have some very good players. I mean, we have to to remember that Shaquille Leonard, who I still maintain is overrated, but he's a good player. Shaquille Leonard was not there. He hasn't been there all year. They've missed his turnovers. I think that Bobby Okereke and EJ Speed have played well. Zaire Franklin's played well. Jonathan Taylor is a good player. I don't know that he's worth what they're probably going to pay him to retain him, but he's a, he's a very good player, obviously. I mean, he is an elite-level player for his position. They have good pieces. Do they have depth of those pieces? Probably not. Is their line a, a matter of personnel or is it a matter of scheme? It's probably a matter of scheme because they have good players that we know have been good as an offensive line, but they're just, there just seems to be water seeping in every single area that you turn. I personally feel like it is not the total overhaul that is necessary or, or, or that is expected, except for the most important position in sports is the one that you got to overhaul. And so even if you have, nines all around whoever comes in a quarterback next year, you have no idea how good that quarterback's going to be, and you have no idea how good they're going to be with the team that they're asked to play with. So there's there's no preparation. There's no game plan. This was the most horribly put-together two- to three-year plan in the history of the Indianapolis Colts. Because what is the plan? Are they going to go out and get another 38-year-old quarterback? I mean, are they going to be scouting Crestwood Village later on the west side to see who's going to be the quarterback next year? Because there's zero reason, none, not a, not a thing. There is zero reason why Matt Ryan should be back next year, none.
Not that, not one. Not one. And so then what do you do? So you can't answer the question as to what they're going to be like next year without knowing who the quarterback's going to be, and there was no vision on who that's going to be. That's what frustrates me. So, Jake Quay with us. Uh, I'm a Reds fan, and I just got this news. Uh, the Reds are saddened to learn of the passing of former pitcher Tom Browning. Tom Browning was on this show maybe three, four years ago and one of the greatest guests of all time. That is such a oh, bummer. Let me tell you a couple of things about him, John, as you know. I mean, perfect game, right? Um, yep. But you know that two of the great Tom Browning moments. I mean, what, wasn't Tom Browning the one, and I could be wrong, wasn't Tom Browning the one that left Riverfront because his yes. wife was going into labor and Marty had to call him back to the stadium? On the radio? Well, not only that, he was also the one that went up and sat on the uh, rooftops and, during the game right when the Cubs and, were playing the, the Reds, too. Some the of the, the two of the greatest stories. Up there above the Torco sign? Yeah, well, and the story you're talking about is on CBS during the broadcast. That's when Tim McCarver said, hey, this is a shout to, to Tom Browning. Your team wants you to return to the ballpark. <laughs> if yeah. you remember, that's how McCarver, that went down. But, yeah, I think it was 90, 93, maybe. 93 is when Browning went up and sat on the rooftops at Wrigley, got fined by Davey Johnson, who was not at all happy about it. Uh, just some of the greatest stories of all time was a tremendous left-handed pitcher, authored a perfect game, and has uh, reportedly passed away. And uh, that should make all Reds fans sad. He was fantastic. Yeah, it's a sad day, man. It's, you know, as you and I know, John, I mean, it's it's always sad when guys that you watched as a kid, you know, it's it's a it's obviously a sign of, of life, but um, great player, great memories, and, and like you, I'm a Reds fan. So, um, you know, the only thing you could say is a lot of joyous times watching those Reds teams and watching him, and, and he should be thanked for it. Yeah, I guess I could save you talking about IU basketball, but I'll leave you with this, and you can give your opinion, and then we'll bail, is that everybody always gets way, way out in front with any IU basketball team, and they did with this one as well, uh, as far as, you know, being the you know Final Four contender, best in the country, Trace Jackson Davis being the best player in the country, um, with the two really good teams that they played in the past two weeks, that kind of goes to show you exactly what they are right now. And I, I don't know if they're going to consistently ever find what they're looking for in terms of shooting with this group. But you turn it over 24 times, even if you're playing in that environment. That's terrible. Everything needs to be looked at long and hard, from players to coaching, all of it, after a dismal performance like that. Yeah, the reality is, and, and you know, it's interesting because I had asked a friend of mine the other day before that game, I said, do you think it's time maybe to start thinking about Tamar Bates getting more minutes over Xavier Johnson just based on consistency? And I know that Johnson is a John Starks type player. When he's on, he's really good. But when he's off, good Lord. And, you know, he's injured. It looks like he's going to be out for a while. Um, yeah. So you certainly wish the best. You never want to see a young player get hurt. Uh, kudos to the Kansas fans for being very respectful as he, as he was hurt in that game. But, Trace Jackson Davis is a very good player. He's a very good player that is not a very good player when he gets double teamed by bigs because it, his lateral quickness is just not enough to be able to step out and get around guys. He's still a good player, obviously, but but he needs help. And, look, there are a lot of teams that are going to go into Allen Fieldhouse and get beat by 20. I mean, it's not like there's a huge shame in that. But if you're an elite team, 
you might lose, but you don't get blown out of the building. And they were never in that game from the get-go. Nope. Kansas' no. speed and ball movement was just too much for them. And I think what you see is, you know, Indiana might have two or three guys that can play at fast pace and catch lightning in a bottle. Kansas has got like nine of them, right? And that's what separates the elite from the good to very good. So I think they're still good to very good. I just don't think that they are in the upper crust that Indiana fans think they are. I mean, their big signature win so far, the one that people got excited about. I mean, I know the Xavier win was good, but you know that North Carolina win. And I mean, you know, what do we learn? We don't know what we don't know what to think of Carolina either, right? So I still think that they're on pace to be, uh, you know, a contender in the Big Ten. I think they're on pace to be a, a second weekend of the NCAA tournament. But a lot of it depends on matchups. And as I said, I think. You know, the way that they guard, they're going to be able to stay in games, but they got to be able to shoot the ball better. And, and they got to shoot the ball better than they did on Saturday. Yeah, when you, you too, you're talking about Trace needs help. He needs help uh, from others team-wise for the team to be better. He needs help from others for him to be as good as he can be too. And he's just not a dude that's going to go out there uh, unless you're talking about, you know, especially against an Arizona or a Kansas Right, and you're not always going to be playing those types of teams. He's just not going to be able to go out and, and be, you know, those types of big number guys against teams like that because there's not much worry defensively on really anybody else out there other than him. And he can't go out there against that and get a lot of his own because he just doesn't have different ways to score. He's going to be going to the rim slashing to the rim, cutting to the rim, and when that's unavailable, he's pretty much offensively hosed, Jake. Yeah, uh, no argument on any of that, man. No argument on any of that. All right, man. What you guys got coming up in the morning? Uh, we'll be talking, actually, you know, we'll continue, obviously, the Colts conversation. Greg Regstra is going to join us. We'll talk a little bit of World Cup with him uh, as well. And then, you know, Pacers on the road for three. They come back two days after Christmas, so um, – you know, they, they've dipped down. Water's starting to find its level a little bit there, so we'll dive deeper into that as well. Got it, buddy. I appreciate you. Thanks, Jake. All right. Get the feeling better. Yeah, thanks, man. Jake Query with us. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Andy Moore, Automotive Group Hotline from ESPN.com, who is still probably in a bit of shock for what he witnessed on Saturday afternoon in Minneapolis. He is Stephen Holder joining us. Listen, I'm cool with them losing, but when you get up 33-0, you got to close it, and you don't want that stain of embarrassment to be something that's going to be lifelong lasting as far as the NFL is concerned, and that's exactly what it was Saturday. Oh, it was. Let me tell you, listen, this team, there's something you cannot take away from them, okay? They are remarkable, okay? And and there's a lot of ways you can use that word. And in this particular way, it is not for the good, right? They, It's interesting. They have now lost in, I think, historic fashion multiple times. I tried to convey this in a story. I don't know if I did a good job, but this was obviously the low point, I think. Yeah. But you have to also go back to go back to the Patriots game. That's one of the worst offensive performances in franchise history. Okay, this is a proud franchise. One of the absolute worst offensive performances in franchise history. Then go to Dallas, thirty-three points in the fourth quarter, second most fourth quarter points yielded 
uh, by a team in NFL history. And then Saturday, history again. So listen, they they haven't done a whole lot memorable this year, but at the same time, they will not be forgotten. That's the one thing they got going for them. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and really to maintain an up-and-coming draft status, that's really what you want to happen. The problem is this is what this team is right now. And I, I said this, and it'll be, we've been going back and forth today as far as, you know, is this, Stephen, going to be something that when you go out and draft a quarterback, can you turn things around and win, and how long will it take? It just seems like with what Chris Ballard has put together, even beyond the quarterback, this thing is not going to work. And I don't have a great deal of confidence that it's going to come back anytime soon. How about you? Well, I go back and forth, okay? So there's a couple ways to look at this. I, first, my, my issue, I'll, I'll say it this way. My issue is I don't think the quarterback is a quick fix. That's my bigger concern, as opposed to I'm worried that the rest of the team is terrible. Now, here's, here's why I say that. and Here's why I'm more worried about quarterback than the other stuff. The reason is, if you look at that game on Saturday, it's actually a good indication of what this team is. And what I mean by that is look at the first half, not the second half. The first half, I think, tells you a lot. In the first half, they get a defensive touchdown, a touchdown on special teams. They're doing a great job getting stops, getting off the field. And the offense, in all of that, they get one offensive touchdown, okay, against a Vikings defense that didn't seem interested in playing for whatever reason. And so they get, they get 33 points in the first half. And all, in, among all of those points, you've got one offensive touchdown. And then in the second half, they had, I believe, nine possessions. I charted this. I think it was nine possessions. They crossed the 50-yard line, I believe. Don't have it in front of me, but I believe one time. I mean, what in the world is that? That's, that's, absolute, that's garbage football, absolute garbage offense. And so what I'm saying is, I think they're now the defense gave up 36 points in the second half, right? That can't happen. But at the same time, when you're not sustaining drives, you can't get first downs. At some point, the defense is going to fall apart. That was a tired unit. It's not okay, but I also kind of can envision how it happened, right? So what I'm saying to you is I, I see other areas of the scene. I think special teams still flashes defense. I still like a lot of the stuff that I see from time to time. It's just, it's not enough. It's just not going to be enough when your offense is absolute bottom five in the NFL and barely that on some days. Yeah, and I kind of look at it this way, is that a lot of what took place in the first half, there was no consistency from us seeing a lot of that this year. I just think it was circumstantial more than anything else. And, and Stephen, I think more in the second half is, I guess, to me, more who this team is and what they're about that, to me, will make for a massive fix here, and not just by hopefully drafting a rookie quarterback or somebody that can throw further than 20 yards down the field, which is Matt Ryan's an absolute disaster. And, you know, I'll take it a step further. I I actually – I will say this. Despite what I just said about liking what I – some of what I have seen on special teams and defense, I would also admit that over the – I think – I don't know, recent weeks and, and at times this season, we've even seen drop-off there as well. You know, the defense, 
you know, they kind of caved late in that Dallas game, right? And they certainly caved in the second half on Saturday in Minnesota. Uh, special teams, I mean, eh, whatever. I think they've done the job. But um, but the defense, as good as it was early, I thought the defense in, early in the season was really good. But I think we've started to see the stain of this season even take a toll on that unit. <laughs> and so here's what happens next year or in this coming off season, you have to decide, okay, is this a team that is this a roster that's sustainable or do you need to tear some things down? And so I think it becomes a situation where they have to entertain some really hard decisions on some good players because they got to decide what they are. Are they a team that can fix this on the fly or are they a team that's got to start over? And I think that depends a lot on what the quarterback outcome is and where they think they are. But I, I think the fact that they have had some setbacks, the Colts in recent, in recent weeks, even the good parts of their team, it makes you take, I think, a broader view and examination of what they are and, and whether this whole thing is salvageable even a little bit in the long term. So I think that's kind of what you're getting at. I, I don't know. I, I think that quarterback, whoever it is, likely this year should have taught us that. It's not going to be a quick fix. So let's just say, and we'll get to this in a minute because I don't know how, why he would deserve to come back for a seventh year, but I am of the opinion that Chris Ballard will be back and he will direct the draft again. He will be a huge part of it and a function of it moving forward. I'll be surprised, let's just say, if he isn't. I think he's going to be. I don't think he should be. But do you think that he is going to have that firm, I'm smarter than everybody else in the world of football view of what he is building here with the absolute failure it has been? Or will he back away from that philosophy a little bit and start bending more, being more flexible to what the rest of the NFL world Steven's trying to do? I mean, if he hasn't learned anything, then I don't know what the point any of this is. Like what point has any of this served, right? I mean, if you're going to go through this, hopefully they learn something from it, <laughs> right? And so I have to assume that there have been some lessons learned. Now, I agree with you just to solidify what you said. I agree. I think Chris Ballard will be back. Whether you like that or not, I think that's where we are. I think he will be back. I, I take Jim Irsay at his word. And I do think it's, it's a frustrating thing to evaluate Chris Ballard in some respects. Now, you can look at the team and where they are, and you can just throw your hands up and say, get this guy out of here, right? That's a very easy thing to do. On the other hand, I could look at the draft results and say, look, the draft results really are impressive. I'm, I'm just telling you, I've, I've watched other teams' drafts. They're garbage for the most part, or in many respects. Their, their draft results are pretty good. I mean, their, their percentages are pretty good. However, the problem is it's where they've it's, – it's some of the decisions they've made about the direction of the team – and the direction of certain positions, and so forth. So it's, it's not about evaluating talent. That's not the problem. It's more about, about some of the choices they have made in philosophy and things like that. And I think that's what you're talking about. And so I separate those two things, but it's the same guy, right? The draft results and the philosophy of the team building, it's the same guy making those decisions. So you, you want to separate it in your head, but you can't really separate it because it's the same individual making those decisions. But I agree. I think he'll be back. I think he's got to make some changes. The last thing I'll say on this point real quick uh, before you shut me up is 
I do think they should make free agency a bigger part of what they do. But I also think that we have to start talking about spending and the fact that they have some, they have some restrictions there that that, that is a reality. We don't talk about enough. And Jim Mercer don't want to talk about that either. Well, I want to let's bring that up then because I've heard this before too. <laughs> I can't remember if I asked you this or not, but we often hear that Jimmer says wallet's always open, checkbook's always open regardless. Right. And then I have heard some stories over this season, whereas that is not the case. Case, I should say. What's the truth behind that? Okay, so look, it's the NFL. They have plenty of money in the grand scheme. Uh, the, the point is, or the problem, I guess, is that there are a lot of other teams that have a lot more money, right? So, so these, these salaries, they're escalating. And, and that's fine, right? I'm all for players making money. I mean, more power to them. I think where that becomes a problem for the Colts is they can't really or they don't feel comfortable getting into these bidding wars. And that's why every March we have these conversations about well, why can't they get this guy? I mean, they can, but they have to make some tough choices, right? So it's kind of like take, take your household budget because Chris Ballard has a budget, whatever it is. I don't know the number, but he's got a budget. They have acknowledged that, and it's, it's probably not as high as the one Jerry Jones gives his team, right? It's just true. And so just for example, not that Jerry Jones has anything to do with this, but whatever that number is, it forces Chris Ballard at times this is my understanding and my observation, right? It forces him at times to make some unpopular choices. So I look at the offensive line this year, for example, and some of the choices they made, you're talking about 3 million here, 4 million there, where they could have retained some really good players. They didn't do it. And I think those are the kinds of things we're talking about. Like if you're going to go out and get Stephon Gilmore for $12 million, well, you've got to squeeze somewhere else. And so that's just one example. I'm not saying that was a bad decision. I'm just giving you an example of the kinds of uh, financial decisions they have to make. So now that's, that doesn't account for all of their mess. Okay, let's just be clear. This ain't yeah. getting them off the hook. This is not why they are where they are. But I do think, go back to Danico Autry, for example, which I think has bit them in the butt numerous times, letting him walk. Um, I think money really drove that decision as opposed to philosophy. They said it was philosophy, and we like our young guys, but the hell with that. Money was a huge part of that decision. And so those are, those are some examples of what they're dealing with, and maybe Chris Ballard should be more honest about it. I don't know, but, you know, I, well, I think is it, certainly uh, not. Is it, the, the, is it the financial philosophy of Ballard or the budget of Ursa? Uh It's both. It's both. It is both. And, and now that's, that's a fair point, though, because Ballard has talked about this, uh, about wanting, you know, players to earn it and, and not wanting to just kind of, you know, throw money at, at players outside their organization who they didn't groom and all that. But I think the truth of the matter is, I mean, you look at, t- say, take Philadelphia, for example, right now. I mean, they went and got A.J. Brown. I know it was a trade, but I'm just saying they went and got A.J. Brown, paid him big money, and they're probably not where they are right now without that move, right? I mean, they're still a good team, but, I mean, are they, are they sitting on top of the NFC without that move? Maybe not. Uh, so, I mean, that's, the, that's, that's an example of 
a move that, that Chris Ballard has been reluctant to make. The only such move I can think of is, is DeForest Buckner. And guess what? That worked out great. <laughs> He's a great player, right? So, like, you know, maybe they should apply those lessons, you know, going forward. I, I don't know. It's uh, Stephen Holder of ESPN.com. He's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline, live at Buffalo Wild Wings on a blue Monday. We are in Franklin on US 31. Great food. We're going to have some beverages when we're done, so come out and join us if you're in the area. Buffalo Wild Wings in Franklin on US 31. So we hear that, and logically so. Jonathan Taylor, with that injury on Saturday, is going to be shut down for the season. How in the, the further distant future, financially, will they view Jonathan Taylor? Is it more of what you saw the year before last in his value, or is it going to be more in the neighborhood of his value this year? How will his next contract be represented? Uh, that's a really interesting question that I don't think I can answer right now, but I can't wait to see how it plays out. I think if you're Jonathan Taylor's representation – you are banging the door down this offseason. Pay my guy because he's given them a lot of mileage the last couple of years, and, and now the injuries are starting to hit. And I don't, I don't think he's injury prone. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying I think it's a wake-up call if you're, if you're Jonathan Taylor, right? You have given them a, a lot of mileage uh, for not much money the last couple of years. And I, I think he's going to want to get his. He's going to be have. He's going to have one year left on his rookie contract after this year. And I, I mean, I, I will tell you this: I saw a different version of Jonathan Taylor, a different personality from Jonathan Taylor this year. And what I mean by that is, look, he's still a team first guy, but I will say it was very interesting to see him say, or to see him. I think lead the decision to not play a couple of times this year as opposed to the team saying, hey, you're going to sit. No, it was actually Jonathan Taylor saying, yeah, you know what? My ankle ain't good. I'm not playing. I'm not there yet. And I don't have a problem with it. I just think it's notable, right? Because that tells me the guy is self-aware. He understands. And I think that's a guy who's going to want his money. (laughs) And damn it, he should ask for his money. So I, I don't know. We'll see. It's going to be delicate, but he, he's a running back. You know how they how they get treated in contract negotiations. Um, we know the injury rate, so I think it's going to be uh, somewhat difficult, honestly. Um, Stephen Holder joins us. So did Jim say really truly want Jeff Saturday to win or impress as an interim head coach to maintain this gig? after they go through all the interview process and the offseason and the protocols set forth by the NFL, did he really want him to have that job? Uh, and if so, why did he put him in this situation to where nobody else wants him in that job moving forward into next year? <laughs> because he convinced himself that it would work, that this would have positive results. So you might have looked at it, and I might have looked at it as, a bad idea or at least questioned it. Right. Yeah. But in Jim Mercer's mind, I mean, he expressed this, we heard him say it, you know, he, I, I think I take him at his word when he said he thought this would, this would have some sort of seismic 
impact on the team. I, I don't think he was exaggerating. I don't think that was just lip service. He believed that. Now, I mean, I've, I've had other people tell me that, you know, he really believes that, that Jeff Saturday has what it takes. Now, whether he believes that less now versus, you know, a month ago, I guess that remains to be seen. But, uh, you know, go back to the – Go back to the Raiders game and, and the aftermath of that game. Jim Mercy was all too happy to to say, I told you so. Right? There haven't been a lot of I told you so since then, but he was certainly very happy to say, I told you so um, on that day because it was in his mind, uh, you know, a, a fulfillment of the things that he had said and the things that he had convinced himself of. So he believes it. Or at least he did. <laughs> I think it's a harder sell even to himself at this point, right? So we'll have to see. I, I, I don't know how, if you're Jim Mersey, let's say even if he still thinks that Jeff Saturday is the answer, okay? God bless his heart if he thinks that. But let's say he does. How do you stand up in front of your fans and say, this is the guy, and, and how you sell that to your fans and ask them to come pay thousands of dollars to come sit in your stadium next season? I mean, come on. Yeah, I um, I, I I don't know how they keep Jeff Saturday, Chris Ballard, and certainly anywhere in the neighborhood of Matt Ryan, but I wouldn't be surprised if you got one of three, certainly, or two of the three in this case, as far as this decision making is is concerned. It is just an absolute mess, Stephen. It really is. Yeah, you know the the Matt Ryan question is actually more interesting or, or a bigger question than people probably realize. I'm not, I'm not advocating for Matt Ryan coming back. All I'm saying is we just talked about money. And then there's the reality here is they owe him a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> okay. Yep. And that's a real thing. I mean, they could probably work something out. There's probably, there's probably a, a, a contractual solution to that, that I'm not thinking of. And I'm sure they've already considered all that, but all I'm saying is it, do not just brush aside the fact that they owe him $18 million because even if you draft a quarterback, and I presume they'll try to do that, you can draft a quarterback, but two things. Number one, you don't know if that guy is ready to play day one or whether he should play day one. So that's a consideration. And number two, you're going to want a veteran in your building, right? And so at least I think, and, and that veteran will cost you decent money, most likely. So you're going to be heavily invested at quarterback if you're the Colts next year, one way or the other, because of the money that's owed to to Matt Ryan. So, I mean, do they bring him back and have him be a mentor? I don't know. It's I don't, I'm not saying it's a good idea or a bad idea. I'm just saying, you know, something to consider, something to think about. He uh, threw a third quarter pass, uh, which was some of the worst offense in the history of the NFL, but he threw a pass to Michael Pittman Jr. that went straight up and straight down. I thought somebody pulled out a gun and shot the football en route. <laughs> it was oh, that man. noodle-armed, weakly thrown right there. My man is absolutely gassless as far as the tank is concerned. It's over. It's over. It's yeah, and, yeah, and, you know, I think the thing that I have noticed, and maybe others disagree, but the thing I've noticed is that it's gotten worse over the course of the season. Because I still, I mean, go back to, to some of those fourth quarters we saw early on from him. I mean, the ball, I thought, had a lot more life to it, you know, and he, he was making 
definitely more aggressive throws than he is now. Uh, there are there are people who have told me that there are a number of receivers that are open down the field at times, and he's just he's not pulling the trigger. I kind of tried to ask him about this last week. I'm working on a story now that you'll see over the weekend, but uh, basically asked him, you know, did he get gun shy because of all the turnovers? And, you know, he admitted that you have to walk this fine line. And so I think there's a lot going on in Matt Ryan's head as well as in that shoulder, especially having had the, uh, the, the shoulder spring, right? That didn't help. So I think there's just a confluence of things going on. But you're right. Physically, it's, he's struggling. What's the harmony like in that locker room from what you see? Oh, I mean, I, I think there's – it's what you would expect, a lot of frustration. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's the defensive guys who I think are the most frustrated. Um, on offense, I think there's just a lot of just, you know, guys feel I, – I don't want to say defeated, but, but they, they've come off a little defeated, you know, because – they don't have answers. You know what I mean? We have lots of questions, but they don't have answers. They can't believe it's this bad either. <laughs> I think on defense, you know, they, they realize they've come up short sometimes, but, but they've also, you know, given them a chance too, you know, I think a lot, a lot of the time. Uh, so over there, you know, you, you look at the Forrest Buckner and, it, you know, you talk to him and it's like, he's like, I don't know, man. You know, you feel like, you know, is that a guy who's going to ask for a trade? He didn't say that. Okay, let me be clear. But, like, that's a guy who in the offseason, you know, you could see him saying, get me the hell out of here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, again, I have no idea. And that's just me talking out of my rear end. But I'm just saying, you know, that that's what you're dealing with. Um, it just feels like a hopeless situation because at this point it is. Stephen Holder of ESPN.com is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. How much more embarrassing does this season look considering the backpedal routine the Titans are doing and then the uh, the mediocre at best Jaguars looking to track them down right now? I know, I know Jacksonville got themselves a real coach and got rid of the clown, but at the same time, this is all a big joke and makes the Colts, to me, look worse. I totally agree because for all of of Jim Irsay's, you know, complaints and frustrations with not being competitive in the division. This was the year, man. <laughs> this was the year. Who knew, right? I mean, we never expected the Titans to just completely fall apart like this. And I don't know where they're going to wind up, but I mean, what do the Titans have seven wins? So, I mean, if this were last season, Hell, the Colts might have clinched already. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're talking about. It, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And it just goes to show you, you know, you, you never know how seasons are going to go. And every game matters. And I, I'll say this, too. This is probably stupid on my part. But, <laughs> look, they, they screwed around earlier in the season. I thought they lost two winnable games. You know, like the certainly the, the, the Washington game. I think if Matt Ryan plays that game, maybe they win. I don't know. I, I think that I think Jeff Saturday uh, made some some bad calculations a couple of times. I think that Pittsburgh game was winnable. Uh, I'm not sure about Philly, but you know they they weren't that far away. They had some opportunities. They just didn't capitalize on any of them, right? And so that's the league. If you win a couple of those, 
they're almost in the playoff conversation, which I know sounds ridiculous. They don't, they're not good. Right. But I'm just telling you, uh, the good teams find a way and the bad teams do what they did. All right. Interesting week. What are we going to hear about leading up to Monday night? What are you going to be writing about? What do you got? Uh, well, I'm really recapping. Uh, this is this story will hit on the weekend, but recapping Matt Ryan's, you know, situation. Basically, the whole the whole beginning to end. How did we get here? You know, like how did this happen? I I, I don't think we ever assumed Matt Ryan was going to have like a Tom Brady effect. I never said that, right? I thought he would be really good for them and was what they needed. But I, I was giving the rest of the team more credit too. But even so, I still, in my wildest dreams, couldn't have envisioned he'd be this bad. And that, I don't think I overrated him. I just think he's, it's just falling apart. And that's what's so frustrating. So, you know, talking to a lot of guys about what they have observed and, and how he's tried to balance that too, because, you know, you're still the quarterback. You still got to be a leader. You still got to say the right things, do the right things, but you got your own problems right now if you're Matt Ryan right so that's a very delicate balance and I think that's kind of interesting too you know what in closing with Stephen Holder of ESPN.com if there is one unifying name for not just the future but uh, hope in the short term too it's a guy that's not coming I'm not suggesting that he is but Jim Harbaugh is the answer to that question as head coach correct yeah I mean Potentially, yeah. I mean, look, when he got to San Francisco, where was that team at the time? Nowhere, right? They were nowhere. I mean, frankly, he's done it at Michigan too. So there's a track record there. I mean, the guy has an ability to build things, and, and that's what they need. I mean, I, I covered John Gruden many years ago, and he's got issues right now, but, but this is a good example of a different kind of coach. So Tony gets – they, they send Tony packing in Tampa. He built it, but couldn't finish it. John Gruden couldn't build it, but could finish it. Right. And so I think different coaches have different strengths and, and Harbaugh seems to have that, that strength a little bit more like Tony where he can, you know, he can turn things around and, and that's what this thing, that's what they needed. You know, culture can only take you so far, man. There's, it's, there's more to it and he's got a proven record of doing it. It's uh, Stephen Oler of ESPN.com with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Man, I appreciate you not only coming on, but putting up with this voice today. My Pharrell on the Vince voice is really starting to fade. It's laryngitis. I feel great. I feel fine. No sickness. But, you know, the voice is wreaking havoc on me right now. I hear you, man. Hey, I, I hear that uh, a tall pint is good for the throat. So uh, hurry up and get off the air and get you one. <laughs> Yeah, it may be a half gallon or something over here pretty soon, too, buddy. No doubt. Whatever it takes. <laughs> Take it easy, man. Thank you. All right, brother. Merry Christmas. It's uh, you, too. Stephen Holder of ESPN.com.